0: Hebrews 4, verse 14, and we'll read through chapter 5, verse 10. Uh, Our scripture readings this afternoon are in connection with Lord's Day 12, where we've been camping out for a while. Uh, This time, uh, thinking about the office of Christ as our priest. And that's what these readings really focus on. Hebrews 4, then, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest... For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obliged to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was." Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's now turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, and we'll read verses 1 through 25. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would they they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins." But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh... not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So far from the book of Hebrews. As we reflect on all that we've read together, let's sing from Psalm 132, stanzas 1 through 5. Where we've been for a little while. Lord's Day 12, that's on page 527 of your books of praise. And we'll read some selected portions from this Lord's Day. There the question is, why is he called Christ that is anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be, jumping forward, our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of His body has redeemed us, and who continually intercedes for us before the Father. Then question answer 32, Why are you called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus share in His anointing, so that I may, as priest, present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to Him. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're continuing here our uh, little mini-series on Christian discipleship, and if you're uh, just joining us for the first time, uh, what we're doing is we're taking our starting point in the title Christ, uh, determining what, what does that title mean, why do we call him Christ, and then working from that to establish what then does it mean to be A Christian, one who's called by the name of Christ. Uh, The principle that we've been working with is is that a a Christian is, put it simply, a disciple of Christ. And therefore, whatever it is for for Jesus to be Christ, that has implications for what it means for for you and I to be Christians. Uh, We've also seen that the title of Christ refers to three different offices Uh, or callings that Christ carries. He is the anointed prophet, the anointed priest, and the anointed king. Uh, Last last time we talked about what it means for Christ to be the anointed prophet, the, the prophet sent by God, the one who shows us the way of salvation, who teaches us the truth, who leads us to God. That's what a prophet does. And when we call Jesus Christ, we say that's what Christ does, what Jesus does, more and more perfectly than any prophet has ever done. Uh, likewise, by confessing that he's the Christ, we, we confess that in him is found all of the wisdom and knowledge of God. We confess his word is truth, and we obey it. Uh, we also saw uh, the, the, the second principle we want to, Work from here is we also saw that as for us as Christians, as those united to Christ, uh, we, we are not only His disciples, but we also share in His anointing such that we are uh, together with Him, called to be prophets, priests, and kings. Uh, we, as we saw last week regarding the office of prophet, we are called as prophets to, to bear God's word, to be bearers of the word of God, to, to preach it to ourselves, to our children, uh, to one another, and as God gives us opportunity to the whole world. You and I, as Christians, are prophets. Well, this afternoon, we want to now look at the second office uh, that Christ fulfills, which is at least as significant, which is the office of priest. Uh, When we confess that Jesus is the Christ, we are saying He is the great high priest promised by God and foreshadowed by all of the many, many priests who came before Him in the, the time of the Old Testament. Now, when you think about the worship of God in the Old Testament, uh, it's good to recognize that the worship of God centered entirely on the work of the priests at the temple. Uh, Well, first at the tabernacle, and then after Solomon built the temple, it was then at the temple. Uh, The worship of God is, is in the Old Testament, a priest-centered worship. And it remains so, we'll see, in in the New Testament. It is a priest-centered worship. Uh, so all the way from Exodus, when the people are taken out of Egypt, to Deuteronomy, when they're uh, about to enter the land, and then, and then going on from that, uh, there are chapters and chapters and chapters about how the priests are to do their work. Uh, how, things like what tasks they would carry out, what clothing they would wear, uh, the details of the tabernacle and the, and the details of the temple. Uh, and it's, easy, it's very easy for, for us to forget that all of that is there or to feel distant and detached from all of that because we live in a different uh, chapter in God's history. Uh, but it's good for us to recognize, at least in that time, the temple was the place you would go if you wanted to worship God. Uh, It was different than than today, where the church is all over the world. In that day, if you wanted to worship the the only true God, you had to go to the temple. Uh, It's not that God was contained there. Uh, Even Solomon, when he built the temple, in his prayer of dedication, he made that clear. Not even the heavens can contain God. And yet, that was the place where God made his name to dwell. Uh, where he wanted his name to be found, and therefore where people needed to go if they wanted to know him and to worship him. Uh, You can get a taste of how how central the the tabernacle and temple were when you start reading some of the Psalms, including some that we sang this morning. I think of Psalm 27. We didn't sing this one. Uh, But Psalm 27, verse 4, it's a Psalm of David, where he says, One thing... Have I asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The temple was a huge deal for the Israelites. Or Psalm eighty four, which we did sing this morning or this afternoon. Uh, where, where it's a psalm of the sons of Korah, where they say, "How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts? My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God." Uh, the temple was the heart of their very worship, their very religion. And and then there at the temple, the work of the priests done in the temple was absolutely central to the worship of God. The priests stood there as the mediators between God and man. Uh, They they, they spoke to men on behalf of God. They would be preachers of the word. Uh, But they also spoke to God on behalf of men, bringing the prayers of God's people before him. Uh, Their job, at its very heart, was to make propitiation. It's a big word. It's an Old Testament word. Uh, And propitiation refers to the covering of sin uh, through a sacrifice, making peace between God and man by means of Sacrifice. That was the the heart of the job uh, that the priests carried out. Uh, so they would offer up sacrifices that people would bring. They'd take them to the altars. There was right when you walked into the temple, uh, in front of you would be this giant bronze altar that was always burning. Uh, There were always sacrifices being offered on it. Uh, So they would bring these sacrifices that the people of God would bring in, and they would offer them for the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, So so that was the worship of God. That's what it looked like throughout the Old Testament. And yet we also learn as we study the Old Testament, we learn that the, uh, the, the priesthood, as they knew it, was not an institution that was going to last forever. And indeed, by the, by the uh, year 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, it ceased. It, it did not last forever. It was established under Moses, but it was limited to that time when the borders of the kingdom of God were, were limited to the nation of Israel, which itself eventually fell apart. Uh, so, so the Old Testament not only lays the groundwork for, for the priesthood, but it also shows us that, that we are to look forward to a day where God would fulfill all that happened in the temple. All that the priest did, which was not going to last forever, pointed to something greater. Uh, the Old Testament scriptures themselves recognize uh, that the priesthood of the temple could not last as an eternal priesthood by itself. Uh, those priests were insufficient mediators in themselves. Uh, every one of them were sinners, uh, who, who in the first place had to make atonement even for their own sins. Such priests can only stand for a moment in the place of priesthood. Uh, they cannot last there forever, for they themselves are sinners. Uh, every one of them were mortal themselves under the curse of death their sacrifices didn't take that away they still died Uh, their sacrifices too and they knew this they recognized this themselves their sacrifices were only symbolic Uh, the blood of sheep and goats and bulls could never take away sins Uh, the people of god old testament and new testament and the jews of today too they understood that the sacrifices don't take away sins. They symbolize something that does. Uh, that's why even the Jews, the Jews today were, who, who don't even have sacrifices anymore uh, because the temple isn't there, yet they, rec- they, they still believe that God forgives their sins. Uh, they don't have a ground for it because they don't worship Christ, but they, they still believe that. They know that the, what happened in the Old Testament was symbolic. It pointed to something greater. Uh, an interesting point on this uh, I, I had a uh, a world religions class in which the professor, a Jew herself, uh, stated that that uh, Christianity has more in common with the religion of the Old Testament than modern Judaism does. Because in Christianity, as in the Old Testament, the sacrifice and the worship through the temple was prominent and central. Whereas in Judaism of today, it it no longer is. Uh, So the whole of the Old Testament sets the groundwork that points forward to the coming of Christ, who would be not only God's anointed prophet, as we saw last week, but would also be the great high priest, for God's people, the one who can truly stand between God and man, stand in that middle ground, speaking to man on behalf of God and speaking to God on behalf of man. And Christ is the one who will bring that whole temporary institution, with all the the, the bells and whistles, so to speak, all the 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 adornment that surrounded that institution, and the many sacrifices to bring it to fulfillment. Uh, to take what was symbolic and bring the reality. Uh, so we, we saw this a few weeks ago when we first looked at the title of Christ in, in a general sense. Uh, David in Psalm 110 speaks of the Christ to come as, as a priest king in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, the, the order of Melchizedek, this was a line of priests that preceded the, the one instituted by Moses. Melchizedek was a priest of God. He's described as priest of the Most High God. But he lived in Abraham's time, long before Moses, long before Aaron, long before the, the, the tabernacle in the temple. You had a priest uh, who, is, who is mentioned there. And, and David points back to him, speaking of him figuratively, and says, the Christ to come will be a priest like that. He does not depend on the temple. He does not depend on the tabernacle. He does not depend on the line of Aaron. But he is an eternal priest appointed by God. Uh, Isaiah, too, describes some of the work of the Messiah as priest in, in Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, it's sometimes, that chapter is sometimes referred to as the, the fifth gospel gospel because of how graphically and accurately it portrays the work of Christ. Uh, Isaiah speaks of the Messiah bearing the sin of many, making intercession for sinners. What is that? That's priestly work. That's, that's something that priests would do. Uh, he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's a priest. Only a priest can do such a thing. Uh, So when we confess with that one word that Jesus is the Christ, uh, we are confessing not only is He the great prophet sent by God, but He is also the great high priest given by God to make true and lasting intercession for our sins uh, that, uh, that, that the old priests of the old system could never have made. All they did was symbolic. What He does is reality. Now, when we speak of Christ as, as priest, uh, it's good for us to recognize He is not only the fulfillment of the priests uh, and their task, but He is actually the fulfillment of the entire priestly system. He's not just a, a great priest. He is the whole priestly system embodied in one person. Uh, so he's not just priest, he's also sacrifice. Uh, he is the sacrifice for our sins. Uh, John the Baptist in John chapter 3 uh, points to Jesus and declares, "Behold!" The, or, excuse me, that's John 1. Uh, he, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, Jesus is not only priest, he's also sacrifice. He's also the Lamb. Uh, so Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. And so we also read in the, author, uh, in the letter to the Hebrews, in the text that we read together, that by the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He's not just priest, he's also sacrifice. And he's not just that, he's also the temple itself. Uh, the temple, as I said a moment ago, was the place that, that people would go to worship God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple as well. Uh, The place to which you go or the place towards which you turn to hear from God, then was the temple, now is Jesus Christ. Where do you go to get to know God? You go to Jesus Christ. Uh, Where do you go to pray to God? You pray through Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus himself made this clear, uh, declaring himself to be the temple of God. Uh, He he said to to the Pharisees, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And and Matthew adds the little parentheses. He said this referring to his own body. Uh, So God's name no longer dwells where it once dwelt. Uh, you, you do not find God by going to Jerusalem and going to the old temple mount and, and expecting God to be there, localized as, as He was before. Uh, he's no longer in the golden st- uh, in the stones of the temple, which no longer exists. God has, made, uh, God, God has come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul says in Colossians, uh, "...in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell." That's temple language. As you think of God dwelling in the temple before, now God dwells in Jesus Christ. That's where you go to worship God. Uh, So when we confess that Jesus is Christ, think of the fullness of what we're confessing here. Not only is he great high priest, he is sacrifice, he is temple, he is the whole religion of the Old Testament In one person. Uh, Everything finds its perfect and complete fulfillment in Him. He's the sum of everything that all of it stood for. If that's what it means then for Jesus to be Christ, then we come to our question, what does it mean for you and I to be Christians? What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ the Great High Priest? Well, it means in the first place, and this is before everything else, it means that Christians are the community of those who are redeemed by the blood of that priest. That is, after all, what it is to be a Christian, uh, to be one who has been bought and redeemed and forgiven by the blood of Christ. That's, that's your most basic definition of a, a Christian. Uh, we recognize that, that our redemption then as Christians, our redemption is something that, wasn't given, uh, that was given freely but wasn't cheap. It was bought with a price, with the blood of Christ. It means that we recognize like the Israelites of old had to recognize and reckon with that our sins are weighty. They're serious. They're not lightly passed over by God. Just as that great bronze altar was prominent when anyone walked in the temple, so the sacrifice of Christ is prominent when anyone walks through the doors of Christianity. They come to see there is the sacrifice by which we are forgiven. Uh, We recognize then that our sins have incurred a debt before God that requires payment that will only come through this high priest. Uh, So to be a Christian is to be someone who knows that he or she was bought with a tremendously great price. Uh, That means then also that to be a Christian is to be humble. Uh, it comes, humility comes with, with the package uh, because we know that we are nothing in ourselves and that anything we are is because of the grace of Christ that brings a certain humility that should be characteristic of the Christian church. Uh, and yet it's not only humility, is it? It's also confidence. It's that wonderful uh, joining of humility with great Confidence. Uh, to be a Christian is to be confident because we know that no greater price could ever be paid for our redemption than the one that has been paid. That Christ's blood is absolutely sufficient to redeem even the worst of sinners. A great humility with a deep, powerful confidence. Uh, So a Christian is one who, in the words of Hebrews 4, which we read earlier, a Christian is one who draws near to the throne of grace with confidence. You see, the grace that we receive and the confidence with which we receive it. Uh, To draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, so that's that 's in the first place a Christian is one who's redeemed by the blood of Christ uh, in the second place, if that's true, if a Christian is one who knows he 's been redeemed, purchased from death by the blood of Christ, then a Christian is also one who now enjoys peace with God the Father through the blood of Christ. Uh, it, it is not just that our sins have been forgiven so that we're not going to hell. That's not the goal of the Christian life, to, to get out of hell. Uh, the goal of the Christian life is peace with God. Uh, and, and that was the, the very much the part of the task of the priests as well. It was to make propitiation, which is to make peace with God by means of that sacrifice. Uh, so to be a Christian is not only to know that our sins have been forgiven and atoned for, such that we're not going to hell. Uh, uh, to be a Christian uh, is to know that because of Christ, our peace with God has been bought and has been restored. Uh, a Christian is one who knows what it's like to live life without being afraid of God, without worrying about what God uh, might might say on the day of judgment, but to know In Christ, I have perfect peace with God, my Father. Uh, David wrote in, in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. It's that blessedness that characterizes the christian existence. Uh, so we recognize that the blood of christ which paid for for our sins is the means by which we have access to the, the greatest and most unimaginable blessing that perfect peace and favor of God given to those who belong to Christ. Uh, Paul uh, paints this picture beautifully as he works through the letter to the Romans, chapters 1 through 4, really focusing on our sins and the the atonement that needed to be made for our sins. And chapter 5 begins a new division in the book of Romans. uh, And it begins with verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of chapters 5 through 8 just detail what that peace with God looks like. It's not a peace without struggle. There's great warfare against sin. There's great affliction in this world. Yet it's marked by great peace bought for us uh, by Christ to be enjoyed with God our Father. That's the Christian life. And that means then, not only is a Christian humble... And confident, as we saw earlier, but a Christian is also joyful. Joy is is, is inextricably character or, or, uh, connected to the the Christian life. Uh, there is no Christian life without that that joy. If we enjoy pe- perfect peace with God, and and we know that nothing in heaven or on earth can take that peace from us, uh, because it was bought with the infinitely worthy blood of Christ, that's a reason for rejoicing. Uh, to be a Christian, in other words, is to know the greatest joy that has ever been known on earth. Uh, to know that, that that we have the Father's love, and it's not based upon you. It's not based based on your performance. It's bought for you and given to you based upon the perfect worthiness of Christ. Uh, It's it's the peace of knowing that none of our weaknesses, none of our failures, none of our our day-to-day laziness in the Christian life, not doing devotions as we wish we did, not serving God as we wish we did, knowing that none of that, uh, uh, because our, our salvation was never based on that in the first place, none of that can and take away the Father's love for us, given to us in Jesus Christ. And so a Christian is humble, a Christian is confident, a Christian is joyful. Uh, The third thing it means to be a Christian, if the first is to know you've been redeemed, the second is to have perfect peace. The third, uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? A Christian is one who directs his entire relationship with God. So he has relationship with God and he directs it through the name and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that happens between me and my God happens through Jesus Christ. Uh, Just as as the saints of old would have traveled a long distance to come to the temple, because everything that happened between them and God would happen through the temple, uh, so we who belong to Christ come to God in the name of Jesus Christ. This is why we end our prayers with the words, In Jesus' name. We we pray to God through the name of Jesus. Uh, this is why we're baptized into the name of of Jesus. Uh, conversely, this also means that uh, that we have we have confidence that just as the old old Testament priests uh, interceded for the people of God, and that people of God could know because the priest has prayed for me, God has heard me. Uh, we too uh, can can know that. That, that Christ now intercedes for us, and through Christ, our cares are known to our God. He intercedes for us. We can have confidence that God hears our concerns. Now, this, is, this is why we as Christians just utterly reject the idea of praying to saints or praying to any other creature. Uh, why would you? That's the, that's the biggest question. Why would you pray to any other creature uh, if you have Jesus Christ, your perfect high priest who loves you more than any creature does uh, and who, whom the Father loves with a perfect love from eternity and He stands between you and God, why would you pray to anyone else? Uh, our Belgic Confession uh, puts this so beautifully. I want to quote from the Belgic Confession here. Uh, the Belgian Confession says, says it this way, We believe that we have, we have no access to God except through the only mediator and advocate, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. For this purpose He became man, uniting together the divine and human nature that we might not be barred from, but rather have access to the divine majesty. This mediator, however, whom the Father has ordained between Himself and us, should not frighten us by His greatness. Don't be afraid of such a great mediator so that we look for some other according to our fancy. There is no creature in heaven or on earth who loves us more than Jesus Christ. Though He was in the form of God, He emptied Himself, taking the form of man and of a servant for us and was made like His brothers in every respect. Here's, here's, here's the, the punchline. If therefore... We had to look for some other intercessor. Uh, Could we find one who loves us more than he who laid his life down for us, even while we were his enemies? Can you find a mediator who's better than that? Uh, If we had to look for one who has authority and power, who has more than he who is seated at the right hand of the Father and who has all authority in heaven and on earth? Moreover, who will be heard more readily than God's own well-beloved Son? Why look for some other intercessor or mediator? Uh, so, so we don't pray to saints. We don't pray to other creatures. We, we direct our prayers through the temple of God, which is the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, so, to summarize, if Christ is our great high priest, what is a Christian? A Christian is one who knows himself to have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, who's therefore humble yet also confident. A Christian is one who enjoys perfect peace with God and who enjoys the favor of God and and is therefore joyful. You think of the blessing that comes at the end of of our morning service. The Lord bless you. The Lord make His face shine upon you. Where does that come from? That was the high priestly prayer uh, given in in, in Numbers 6. That's what the priest was to say at the end of all the sacrifices as as he sent the people away. Well, that's what the Lord Jesus himself says to us on the basis of his sacrifice. The Lord bless you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Uh, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's Jesus' blessing for us. Uh, and finally, a Christian is someone who bases his entire relationship with God on that perfect work of Christ and therefore directs his prayers in, to God in the name of Jesus. And so we've seen then what it means for Jesus to be Christ as the great high priest. We've seen what it means, or a glimpse at least, of what it means to be a follower, a disciple of that Christ. And, and finally, uh, we, before we close, we do want to take a moment to remember, as we've seen last, last week as well, that as Christians, as those who belong to Christ, we're not only His disciples, but we also share in His anointing. What does that mean? For us to be anointed as priests uh, ourselves, through Christ... Uh, As Christians, we're not just redeemed by the great high priest, we're also anointed as priests ourselves. This truth was one of the greatest uh, and most wonderful recoveries of the the Great Reformation that happened in the the 1500s. At that time, the Roman Catholic Church had developed a strict hierarchy uh, between different classes of of Christians and had restricted participation in communion in in the the Lord's Supper uh, to only the bread so the common people could only eat of the bread the the wine because it was the blood of Christ was too holy it was not to be touched by the common people uh, what the reformers beginning with Martin Luther rediscovered is, is that all believers are made priests are made holy by their union with Christ. There is no second-class Christian. There is no lower-class Christian. We are all holy before God, sanctified and perfect before God through Christ. And so all of us as priests partake of the sacrament. Uh, So the Apostle Peter, for example, writes to the Christians uh, who are scattered across the Roman Empire, many of whom were, were slaves, and he says to them, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You are priests before God. Now, in what sense uh, what, what does that mean what in what sense are we ordinary Christians priests before god uh, we 're we're not like christ we don 't offer atoning sacrifices that sacrifice has already been been offered for our sins, uh, and yet because of Christ. We do, like the priests of old, have access directly to the throne of God, to the very presence of God. In fact, the gospel accounts, as they retell the, the crucifixion and death of Christ, they record that moment when, when Christ died. The rocks were split open, but the temple of of the the or the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God ripping that barrier open such that there is now no barrier between God and his people. Uh, The the very holy of holies was open to the presence of, uh, uh, to to the the access of God's people. Uh, So we as Christians who belong to Christ are anointed with him to have access to his very presence. And, And there, in the presence of God, we do carry out a priestly work. Uh, in the Old Testament, there were, there were many diverse sacrifices that were offered, uh, but you can, you can sort of divide them into two broad categories. There were the guilt offerings and there were the thank offerings. Uh, the, the guilt offerings atoned for sin, but there were also thank offerings that expressed God, uh, the, the gratitude of God's people and peace offerings that were belonging to the same sort of category that expressed the peace that God's people enjoyed with Him. Now, the guilt offerings have their perfect fulfillment in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. No more guilt offerings need ever to be offered. Uh, but, but, But the New Testament nonetheless still speaks of us as Christians, as those who have been redeemed by that sacrifice, nonetheless still offering sacrifices. Uh, so Paul writes in, in Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Uh, also, Peter, in, in 1 Peter 2 verse 5, he says, you, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, You've got that temple uh, imagery, into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And what are those spiritual sacrifices? Well, they're the sacrifice of our very selves. They're thank offerings that are our very selves, our own bodies and a life devoted to God, the sacrifice of a life of faith before God. The New Testament mentions some other sacrifices. Uh, For example, Hebrews, uh, the the author to the Hebrews writes, Through Christ, let us then continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. There's the sacrifice of, of praise. Uh, one more you might mention, the sacrifice of charity or, or the sacrifice of love uh, that we offer uh, before God as we extend it to one another. The, the author to the Hebrews again says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Uh, the point here that, that we really don't want to miss is that these sacrifices, as as imperfect As we all know they are, my sacrifices of love and yours are not perfect. Uh, And yet, they are holy, Uh, the author of Hebrews, and Peter too, just drives this home over and over. They are holy, pleasing, and acceptable to God. As a community of priests, redeemed by Christ, brought into the presence of God, we offer these sacrifices with our lives, and they're holy and acceptable to God. And pleasing to our God. That's our great privilege as priests uh, before God. We have the privilege of offering with our very lives a sacred service that's perfected by Christ and holy and pleasing to God. And that's what our entire lives are to be. Uh, We're called as Christians to recognize we've been made holy. We've been set apart. We've been designated with that great title of priest such that our whole lives uh, are, are offered up as sacrifice before God. Uh, so when we get up in the morning, uh, as, as you will tomorrow morning, and we, we go to work, uh, we do that as a service, as a sacrifice to God, conscious uh, we, we do that conscious of the status of our work as holy work, even the most mundane things they 're holy uh, tasks uh, when we feed breakfast to our children it 's a holy work it 's a sacrifice pleasing and acceptable to God uh, when we give within the church of our time and our energy uh, in, in the service of our, uh, our our daily work of love within the church. That too is a sacrifice pleasing, holy, and acceptable before God. And we, we give ourselves as a gift to God. And God receives that gift with delight. He, he, he delights in those sacrifices. And, and, and not only are we priests, but just as Christ was not just priest, but also sacrifice and also temple, so we too are Together, the temple of God. Uh, where is God to be found? Here on earth. He's to be found in heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. He's to be found on earth, not just anywhere. Not just on a walk in the mountains, uh, though God certainly is there. But where do you go to find God? You go to find Him in His church. It's here, as we are gathered together, uh, that, that God promises to be among us. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, he he says, Do you not know that you, and that's a plural you in the Greek, uh, that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Uh, So we recognize as a church we have a sacred uh, duty and calling to keep this, the temple of God, pure, uh, just as the priest did in the Old Testament, cleaning the physical building, so we today uh, clean house. We, we make sure the temple of God is, is pure. We fight for holiness within the church of God. Uh, And because we are temples uh, of the Holy Spirit, each of us also uh, individually have a sacred duty to keep ourselves pure from sin. Uh, As one who bears the name of Christ uh, and and in whom Christ promised at your baptism uh, to dwell in by His Spirit, you are called to be pure uh, it's a sacred duty that we have to 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 remove sin and all that all that is impure from our lives uh, that's, this is why, uh, even though oftentimes we dread having to go through books like Leviticus, that's probably nobody's favorite book of the Bible to read through, uh, it's nonetheless good that we do so. Though we live in a very different chapter, you see there in Leviticus the calling of God's people to keep his temple pure. Uh, so we are to keep ourselves pure with a religious fervor. We are to drive sin from our lives. Uh, So, once again, we, we recognize what a tremendously significant confession it is to make to say, I believe in Jesus the Christ. Uh, there's a great deal of, of of biblical content, baggage, that is carried into that, that title. He's not only the great prophet, he's also the great high priest. And, and so we who belong to him are redeemed by his blood. Uh, we, we know peace with God, and, and we live our whole lives through that priest, Jesus Christ. And, and it's to this calling, too, that God now adopts, this his child, uh, Nora Brielle, uh, into his covenant. In in baptism, she too is set apart as part of that royal priesthood, that sacred uh, people, that holy nation, that that people chosen by God for his own possession, so that she too may proclaim the excellencies of God who's called her out of darkness and into his eternal light. Uh, That's her great privilege that comes with being part of God's covenant. And it's your calling too, Josh and Gail, to to instruct her in the ways of Christ our High Priest. uh, To teach her what it means to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. And to show her what it is to live a life that is holy, pleasing, and acceptable to God. It is indeed a great thing to which God calls us and for which He seals us by this sacrament into His covenant. Amen. Uh, Let's sing in response from hymn 38, stanzas 1 through 4.